Hey everybody, Dale here. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give you a little bit of a disclaimer on the front end. What we're talking about today is an article that was posted to uh, the Gospel Coalition's website, and it was written by Josh Butler, and it was actually an excerpt from his upcoming book called uh, Beautiful Union, which is a, a book describing what he believes to be God's vision for sex. Since the, the publishing of that article, uh, there has been a lot of criticism that we discuss in this episode, but because of that, the article has since been taken down, and a, a new landing page has been put in its place. And that landing page says, quote, We recognize that the adapted excerpt from Josh Butler's forthcoming book, Beautiful Union, lacked sufficient context to be helpful for this format. The excerpt was taken down from the first chapter of Beautiful Union, and you can download and read the entire introduction and first chapter here. So in the show notes, we'll put a link to the article as it originally appeared because uh, we pulled the archival uh, link, and we'll also put the updated link there. And also while we're here, the, uh, the subject matter of that article um, that we did our best to um, not be crude with our language in describing uh, what he was talking about in that article, but it, it did get a, a little bit uh, graphic. And so I just wanted to give you a content advisory on the front end as well. Well, with those disclaimers out of the way, here is the episode. Life Audio. Hello, and welcome to Kindness Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Have you heard of this little website called the Gospel Coalition? Yes, it's a very small website. I'm surprised I've ever heard of it. I mean, certainly not as large as our website, but they've been around a little bit. They got some names, you know. Yeah, if you're within the Christian space um, and often reading Christian content, the Gospel Coalition is... A go-to website. Yeah. So the Gospel Coalition, they recently launched an initiative called the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. And this was the brainchild of Timothy Keller, who's a well-known pastor and scholar and apologist. And the purpose of this center is to provide resources for apologetics in kind of a post-Christendom era. So for centuries, even though not everyone has been a Christian in the West, many Christian ideals have kind of been the order of the day in Western society. And so uh, up until recent decades, evangelism really consisted of connecting pre-existing dots that were there, like the dots of like you know, belief in an afterlife, belief in certain moral absolutes, belief in the need for forgiveness, belief that you know going to church was something that was a, a social good to do. And, but today, like those uh, dots don't exist anymore as we live in a post-Christian era in the West. And so the purpose of the Keller Center is to start creating resources that set forth a compelling vision or a compelling argument to reestablish some of those dots again. So it's kind of this exciting initiative when they announced it a number of weeks ago. I was excited to hear about it. And so the Keller Center, they have this roster of what they call fellows, who <laughs> just a bunch of fellows, you know, and they have uh, their pastors and scholars and they're writing articles and books and uh, they have online learning cohorts um, to just kind of, you know, provide some apologetic materials. 
uh, and part of the vision of the Keller Center will be arguing for the moral beauty of the traditional Christian sexual ethic. And so to that end, they published recently an article by a pastor named Josh Butler, and he's a Keller Center fellow. And this article was uh, actually a uh, an excerpt from his book that's going to be released soon about God's vision for sex. And so as I set all that up, that sounds like a good thing. Yeah, it sounds like there's a great need for something like that within our culture and our society right now. Oftentimes, you and I will talk about like the um, evangelistic like strategies, um, which I don't even like using that word when it comes to uh, sharing the gospel with people. But when it comes to like teaching on how do you go out and how do you share your faith and how do you do all these things, uh, we oftentimes work from a very old model of this foundation that everyone kind of starts from the same place. And so when they say like, where are you going to go when you die? Um, people are like nowhere. Like that's the end. And, and before it was commonly understood that you either went to heaven or you went to hell. Like that was a, a fundamentally agreed upon understanding of the afterlife. And now we're living in a culture when, you ask someone that question and they are not starting from the same place you are. So you need to really backtrack your conversations. Uh, so something like this with the Color Center is absolutely needed uh, to not only just find ways to talk about Jesus in our culture, but to make resources and uh, critical thinking available in this type of direction. Right, yeah. So they're going to think through a lot of innovative ways to rethink things, reimagine things, to kind of create on-ramps to the Christian faith. Um, And that's an exciting and compelling vision. However, this article published by uh, Josh Butler this week um, has kind of caused the project to stumble out of the gate a little bit. And we'll talk about that. That's going to be the subject of our conversation today, Uh, but we'll dive into it in just a minute. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So we're, there was this article written by Josh Butler, who's a, a pastor, and it was titled, Sex Won't Save You, But It Points to the One Who Will. This article, within basically moments of being published, um, became the subject of some pretty vociferous criticism. 
And the criticism is centered on some of the language that Butler used in that article, but really also just the article's main thesis, which is that sex is really a metaphor for salvation and for Christ's love for the church. So I thought that we'd take a closer look at the article and see, like, is it really as bad as all the online noise says it is? Um, as well as kind of dive into some of those critiques uh, a little bit more specifically. So it's this article, it's called Sex Won't Save You, But It Points to the One Who Will. And in the article, Butler, he talks about how when he was young, he used to view sex as though uh, it was going to save him from loneliness. And that many people in our culture today uh, are doing the same thing, but ultimately idolizing sex results in what he says is slavery. And so I'm like, okay, so far, so good. This is, I, I agree with this so far. Uh, but then he says, sex wasn't designed to be your salvation, but it points to the one who is. And then from there, he goes on to present this image of how sex is an icon for salvation. So like essentially meaning that, uh, that sex is this really powerful image of what God did when he saved us through Jesus is the point that he's trying to make. And he anchors that argument in Ephesians five thirty one and 32, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's one of those great, you know, wedding passages that gets quoted. Um, but then Butler, he does this thing where he really kind of hones in on the leave and cleave motif, that a man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and with a real like heavy emphasis on cleave and a and a real narrow subset of what that means kind of in the most literal physical terms and so that's kind of the setup and then i'm going to just i want to read some pretty substantial portions from the article uh just to give a flavor of the prose of how this argument unfolds Okay, so this is him describing the theology of sex. It says, quote, Generosity and hospitality are both embodied in the sexual act. Think about it. Generous, generosity involves giving extravagantly to someone. You give the best you've got to give, lavishly pouring out your time, energy, or money. At a deeper level, generosity is giving not just your resources, but your very self. And what deeper form of self-giving is there than sexual union where the husband pours his presence not only upon but within his wife? Hospitality, on the other hand, involves receiving the life of another. You prepare a space for the guest to enter your home, welcoming him warmly into your circle of intimacy to share your dwelling place with you. Here again, what deeper form of hospitality is there than sexual union where the wife welcomes her husband into the sanctuary of her own self? Giving and receiving are at the heart of sex. So there's a couple paragraphs there. Then Butler, he kind of goes on to talk a bit about how uh, the language of the Old Testament uh, that's used to refer to sex is how a, a husband goes into his wife. So I think this is used by uh, when in Genesis when it's describing um, Isaac. Isaac went into Rebecca and she conceived and, and had a son. And so that's language of the Old Testament. So he really kind of emphasizes this goes into 
language uh, and then parallels that to Jesus going into the church. And so later on in the article, he writes, On that honeymoon in Cabo, the groom goes into his bride. He is not only with his beloved, but within his beloved. He enters the sanctuary of his spouse, where he pours out his deepest presence and bestows an offering, a gift, a sign of his pilgrimage, that the potential to grow within her a new life. Sorry, I'm trying to read with a straight face. (laughs) This is a picture of the gospel. Christ arrives in salvation, not to be only with his church, but within his church. The turnaround on that is just, we're going to have to discuss that part. Christ gives himself to his beloved with extravagant generosity, showering his love upon us and imparting his very presence within us. Christ penetrates his church with the generative seed of his word and the life-giving presence of his spirit, which takes root within her and grows to bring new life into the world. Inversely, Back to the wedding suite, the bride embraces her most intimate guest on the threshold of her dwelling place and welcomes him into the sanctuary of her very self. She gladly receives the warmth of his presence and accepts the sacrificial offering he bestows upon the altar within her most holy place. Similarly, the church embraces Christ in salvation, celebrating his arrival with joy and delight. She has prepared and made herself ready, anticipating his advent in eager anticipation. She welcomes him into the most vulnerable place of her being, lavishing herself upon him with extravagant hospitality. She receives his generous gift within her, the seed of his word and the presence of his spirit, partnering with him to bring children of God into the world. Their union brings forth new creation. So, that was a lot what are your initial reactions? I just got to go say one thing. Of all the words in in Merriam-Webster's, he goes with penetrate. Yeah. I'll let you take it from there. Oh, thank you. That's a wonderful spot to I just, that, just that, leave me I just at. can't. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to... <laughs> uh, Situations like this where you hear about somebody saying or writing, whether it's written or, you know, preaching a sermon um, and the world of Twitter goes crazy. I often like to actually go back and either fully read the article or fully listen to the sermon because usually... I'm laughing because it's not the case here. But usually... <laughs> yeah, it is usually, because usually I'll usually, go back and read. I'm like, oh, oh well, people people get like, upset, well, whatever. Like they, okay, maybe they could have, you know, uh, crafted their language a little bit better. Um, and and we're, we're now honing in on one sentence or two or one phrase, and we're going mad. But when you really put that into its context, that's not what they were trying to say. Like... Come on, everyone. Can we have a little bit of grace for one another? Um, but so I went on to the Gospel Coalition and I read this article. Um, yeah, it, just about the whole thing was shocking. From, it was like every like, third started, sentence was breathtaking. Yeah, like it started off well, right? Like we shouldn't um, 
idolize sex in, in such a way that we become slaves to it. Like it's not through sex that like all of our problems are solved and all the things he was saying in the beginning. Absolutely true. But then he turns it into something that is just untrue (laughs) in a lot of ways. So he's talking out of um, Ephesians. He's taking this metaphor of um, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife and their relationship and how that mirrors Christ's relationship with the church. But he he hones in on the sex aspect of of a relationship between a husband and a wife. And really what's happening within this text is it's talking about marriage. It's talking about the commitment a husband and a wife have to one another. It's and you're not, talking about the leave and cleave passage. Yes. He leaves his father and mother and, and cleaves to his wife. Yeah. In and the two become one flesh. And he says, this is a mystery in that I'm I'm talking about it, it reflects uh, Christ in the church. Yeah. So the reflection of Christ in the church. But what Butler does is he then says. He says, yeah, sex. Yeah. So he hones it in as if an entire marriage relationship is about sex. Um, and even when you see that leaving and cleaving, and he's he's trying to really pull out it being related to sex and sex only. But if you go back to Genesis 2, I believe it's Genesis 2, um, where you, Ephesians is quoting Genesis 2. Right, right. So when you go back to Genesis 2, you it's not just talking about sex in Genesis 2, and it's not just talking about sex in Ephesians. Like, it's actually talking about um, the husband leaving his family and being committed to his wife and the two becoming one flesh in a way that their commitment and their bond is so strong that it cannot be separated. Certainly we all understand that sex is part of that relationship, but Butler takes this metaphor and he gets into every small detail of the metaphor that you can like talking about going into a woman and the man's semen being this gift to the woman and it being like the holy of holy places within her body. Like it's just metaphors are good, right? Like they help us understand. It's hard to even describe what he's talking about without being like crude, you know? Yeah, it, it feels so sacrilegious to me in a lot of ways. One, he does does a misservice to the text in Ephesians and in Genesis. He is um, taking, again, a small aspect of what happens within the context of a marriage or and the way that God designed marriage, right? The sexual ethics, the, the um, traditional understanding of sex being... Uh, something that should be celebrated, something that should be honored, something that should you can find joy in within the context of marriage. Um, but then he's comparing Christ and the church to only sex, which again, if you look at the passage in Ephesians, which is quoting the passage in Genesis, that's not what it's pointing to. It's not just talking about sex. So he's he's taking the metaphor, he's taking it way too far. In every single way you can think of. Like he's crossing so many lines. Um, And there's harm in what he's done. Hmm. Because we live in a time. And it's not even currently. right? This has been the history of mankind. When you have this sexual objectification of women. You have the oppression of women. 
You have the dominion of men over women. And the way that he is describing sex between man and woman, um, like he's saying women should feel honored by the gift of the generosity. And the generosity. That was like a little weird to me because he frames um, a man depositing his semen as an act of generosity. Like you, you're welcome I, I'm, that I gave of myself as if it's not like he's receiving something in, in that, like this was a selfless act because he of uses me depositing the word, my seed. He uses the word of this sacrificial generosity that the man. Like you should be has. so lucky that you could have my seed. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And so even just putting that within the marriage context alone is, I mean, cringy isn't even the word. Like it, it actually makes my blood boil because I know so many women that are in these oppressive relationships. And unfortunately, they are within the Christian context of women who truly want to honor and submit to their husbands as they understand scripture to be. And you really see these like domineering power play abusive relationships because of this quote unquote biblical model. Um, And you don't see mutual respect. You don't see... um, mutual generosity and mutual hospitality like using his language right right uh she is the receiver of this sacrificial generosity she is the one that should just be so honored and then to say like this is the biblical understanding like let's keep reinforcing the sexual objectification of women it's it's so disheartening and so dishonoring to to the relationship that God intended to be between husband and wife. But then not only is he like making that oppressive and weird, but then he says this is Christ in the church. Yeah, and that's the, the other part uses, where it's like in like in this metaphor like okay. I'm just describing what I'm reading. Yeah. In this metaphor Jesus is the penis. Right. And the church is the vagina. Which is, hold on, most, which is, the which most is, holy place. Yeah, which is filled with his presence. Yeah. Like, that's really, like, that. that's what he's saying. And it's, like, right. a little shocking. Well, and it also makes me think of um, Song of Solomon. Like, the whole book of Song of Solomon. It's all about sex. Okay, but it's not no, like this. No, right. No, and no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm saying when people want to take... Song of Solomon and the the allegory and the picture that's happening within Song of Solomon and they want to take it so far to say this is Christ and his church and I understand that is a more traditional understanding of Song of Solomon but when you read a lot of the language happening within that book you're like wait but how how do you correlate these metaphors with Jesus and the church? Because it's it's very explicit in the language that it's using. Like it's describing the breasts of the woman. Like it, it's um, to try and take those same things and say, look, it's a one-to-one with Christ and the church. And he tries to do a one-to-one in so many ways. 
and he's that very, you should not be doing. No, and he's very intentional about the way that he uses the language within with the husband and wife, and it's very sexual. And then he wants to mirror all of that language with Christ in the church. Even the way that he talks about, um, let me see if I can find the quote, because I don't even know what he means when he says, um, this is a picture of the gospel. Christ arrives in salvation to be not only with his church, but within his church. And just the language of Christ arrives in salvation, like what Christ is salvation. So how is he arriving in it? It feels like he's really just trying to force this metaphor in a way that you never see these words like connected side by side one another at all in scripture or or even anywhere. Uh, So when he's saying like Christ arrives into salvation so he can be within his church, it kind of just feels like he's making up stuff at this point because Christ himself is salvation. So how is he in salvation? And then how is he within the church? He's just stretching it. It's a lot Um, of in and with and ways that feel uh, like just just sexually invasive. Well, and it's not even a matter of, wow, this is like really just making me uncomfortable. Like I just don't want to talk about sex. Like I don't, no, I don't want to talk about that's sex not, in a church That's setting. not even that's it. Not like, it. I just don't want to talk about like the idea of Jesus wanting to have sex with me. Right. Like Jesus penetrating the church. Like what in the heck are we talking like, about here? I was like, sure. You did not just say Jesus yeah. penetrates the church. Right. Good gravy. When you're using a sexual metaphor. Come on now. Right. That is. That was weird. It well, it was, and it also, like, w- n- he's certainly pushing like some kind of envelope here with this article of, yeah, like redefining sexual ethics, but for what? Like, what are you redefining it as? Um, especially within the context of marriage, like the role of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife within sexual relationship. Um, again, I, I just can't get over the fact that this uh, understanding of a marriage relationship only like makes way for abuse to happen and then to turn it over to Christ in the church is, is it's like heretical to the text. Right. So you asked me my thoughts and I don't know if you wanted me to share that many thoughts, but those are all of. I mean, those are the those thoughts. Those are all of them. There you go. Well, as you might imagine, we're not the only ones who have thoughts. And within like literal hours of this article being published, there were response articles from num- numerous people. Uh, I want to dive into two of those, but we'll dive into those in just a moment. Okay, so the internet was ablaze after this article. Um, about Christ penetrating the church uh, hit the Gospel Coalition website. And um, probably by the time that this episode is released, like four days after being recorded, there will be more articles that will have been written, I imagine, in response to this one. But there's a couple that either the same day, like later that day, like someone read it and was like, all right, I'm going to write an article today. 
and they wrote a response to it, um, or just the next day after it. I wanted to look at two of those. Um, you can scroll through Twitter for all of the jokes that um, were made at the expense of this article, most of which um, I don't feel comfortable uh, reading in mixed company, but uh, some of them were um, rather humorous. In mixed company? <laughs> yeah. What, what does that even mean? So, never mind. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, the first one, we'll skip over those and go right to the theological responses. So the Thank first you. one. That's what our podcast was is about. <laughs> from uh, Zachary Wagner, who is the author of uh, the book Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. And that's set to come out in April. And I have that one bookmarked because I want to buy that when it comes out this spring. Uh, but he, um, right after the TGC article came out, uh, he posted a Twitter thread Um, And I'll just take a couple of the highlights of what he said. And he said, uh, it's very okay not to over-spiritualize the mechanics of sexual intercourse, actually. Sometimes I think the reason certain Christians fixate on the theological significance of sex, it has more to do with the shame we feel about sex and sexual desire than actual typology present in the Bible. If we can connect sex to God... It makes us feel less guilty about wanting it. And then later in the thread, he says, uh, it's okay to let sex be sex. Yes, God created it. It's part of our humanity. And because of that, sex is not shameful or dirty, even if you're not thinking about Jesus when you're doing it. So I thought I was like, well, there's a pretty good reply right there. But then he 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 did a whole blog post about it that was kind of a more full uh, um kind of treatment of the article and in that uh, that response article he wrote in the post me too in the post church Too context christians should be careful about how they employ uh, christ church typology as it relates to sex yes it is the case that theologians throughout the church's history taking their cue from ephesians uh, 5 25 through 31 have connected sex to salvation and the church christ relationship It is also the case that rank misogyny has been a consistent feature of Christian theology. When theological analogies about sex mix with dehumanizing attitudes about sex, things can get dangerous quickly. A little further down, he says, Some readers may feel that I am denying the theological legitimacy of an analogy that the scripture itself points to. Not at all. I am cautioning that... In the wrong minds and hands, hyper-spiritualized, hyper-sexualized language can be used by would-be abusers to justify and rationalize their sins against women and children. It's not out of bounds to reflect theologically on sex and how it connects to the Christ-Church relationship. But it's something we should be do very carefully in these days of evangelical crisis and scandal. And then a little bit later down in the article, he says, again, it is not out of bounds per se to connect sex to the Christ church relationship, but we should remember that sex doesn't need to be over-spiritualized for it to be a created good. Sometimes we can just let sex be sex because sometimes the way we connect sex to salvation may reveal more than anything else the church's unhealthy preoccupation with Sex. So that was uh, Zachary Wagner responding there. What were your thoughts to his response? Yes, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) That's all the thoughts I have left. Um, Yeah, I think him saying like, why can't we just let sex be sex? Like, why are we trying to spiritualize it and connect it in ways that the Bible is not connecting it? Um, And then to really build whole theologies around um, these misconnections that we're creating is harmful 
to the church. It's harmful to the body of Christ. And there is something behind Christians um, being really fixated on sex. Right? Right. Like you have... Um, I'm j- there's a few things that I that particularly come to mind, especially when it comes to women and sexualizing women and objectifying women. Um, anytime someone is overly promiscuous or seems a little bit too sexy, um, the per- a woman, not just anyone, but a woman, oftentimes within the Christian sphere, we like to call her a Jezebel. Mm-hmm. Or a Delilah, like someone, oh, she's just trying to lure you in and cut your hair. Yeah, yeah, she's just trying to, um, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it just leans into this understanding that women are the ones who are um, causing the men to stumble in their sexual acts. Like, men seem to not be responsible in a lot of ways. But then when it comes to sex within marriage, it's the woman that needs to continue to honor the man. Mm-hmm. Like it's just such a weird double standard of when you're single, a woman should not be sexy. She should not be trying to lure a man in. She should not be a Jezebel. But when you're married, now this is your duty. This is now your obligation to your husband because... um that's the way that you need to show love to your husband. Like how, why can't we just ha- talk about sex within a church in a healthy way? Right. Like God created it for good. So why do we have to always be so obsessed with like not doing it or yes, doing it. And when you are supposed to do it, like now it's a weird obligation that happens within the context of marriage. Um, and I think Butler again, really leans into that too. Um, there's a particular passage related to husbands and wife with sex. That's like, I'm totally going to butcher the passage. (laughs) It basically says like, she's not supposed to like turn away her husband if he wants sex unless like she's praying or reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that about sums it up. I I don't know where that's located. Maybe we can like drop first Corinthians somewhere. There you go. Um, so now you have that kind of like language happening around sex of it's the woman's responsibility to meet the the sexual needs of the husband. But again, if she's single, she's, you know, a floozy and a Jezebel and like she's just trying, she shouldn't be sexy. Like it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do as a woman. Right. Within like within the biblical understanding of um, sex for a woman, I honestly don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't as a woman and we become so fixated within the christian world um just like the like i kiss dating goodbye and all all, like just all of those types of movements that we're putting upon young people within the church in relation to sex we're still not talking about it in a healthy way right And, and even when we talk about um like sexual addictions and pornography. Like we want to call everything a sexual addiction. Um, I don't, I feel like we've written about that or we've had another podcast about that topic in particular of the church's like weird relationship and kind of obsession with sex. Right. And I think to what Wagner uh, kind of points out is that 
um, you know, I don't know Butler from Adam, and I'm not saying that, you know, he, he could be a perfectly nice man, loves Jesus, loves his family, loves his church. You know, I'm, I'm but he inc- just got I'm, this wrong. I'm inclined to assume that. But the language that he uses is is actually the language that a lot of abusers would use in terms of like the entitlement, the gift I'm bestowing upon you, you should receive it with hospitality, like that kind of very like power and submissive kind of framework is used in the abusive situations. And I think uh, this other response uh, also susses that out a little bit too. This is written by Michael F. Bird, who's a New Testament scholar. And so he also responded with an article of his own, another good article. Uh, we'll link to all these articles in the show notes so you can read them in full. But just like Wagner did Bird, he uh, he concedes that the marriage metaphor relating to Jesus and the church is in the Bible. There's clear biblical warrant for that. And he also even points out that the Puritans sometimes, quote, likened communion to the ecstasy of sex. Which that's, that's weird, yeah. But it does set up some kind of sexual or some historical precedent for this sexual metaphor. Um, I don't. I I'd have to go back and read what those folks actually wrote, but you know, feels weird. But you know what? Go off. You know, if that's what you're into, uh, just like just like wrong, take just uh, taking the communion. Lines. The Ooh. wrong word choice that Ooh. you just used. Yeah, <laughs> considering this topic. Yeah, um, but. Nevertheless, even with that, uh, Bird argues that Butler's argument is even a little bit weirder. So he says, quote, Butler's piece gets cringy and manufactures conditions for misogyny when he equates literarily Christ's saving word with a man's semen. He uses the language of penetration a lot, refers to semen as a sacrificial offering and a holy seed, and describes a woman's uterus as hospitable and rejoicing. Note, in Butler's analogy, the man plays the role of Christ and the woman is the church, but never vice versa. That automatically correlates men with Christ-like authority and Christ's agency, while the women are cast as receiving salvation through the man's sexual fulfillment. The man penetrates and the woman is penetrated. This makes men dominant and active while women are passive and obedient. Sexual release for the man is part of the woman's salvation. The man's pleasure and penis are Christified while his semen is sanctified as a holy sacrifice. I can't believe I'm even saying that, he writes. And so then he kind of pulls up some receipts of older TGC articles, one from about a decade ago, to illustrate that this kind of theology and this kind of language isn't necessarily new. And he pulled up uh, an article from 10 years ago that's like since been taken down. But the author of that article quoted uh, Douglas Wilson. And if you don't know who Douglas Wilson is, um, among other things, he's the author of the pamphlet uh, Southern Slavery As It Was, which was kind of like an, an apologetic for antebellum slavery. So I don't know if I want to take theological advice from him, let alone sexual advice. Uh, and for context, Bird is an egalitarian, so like a, a lot of times in these debates there's um, kind of uh, elements of, we talked about this in the uh, Saddleback episode, where uh, there's a, there's some you know shots across the bow in terms of like the theological systems and, and, and all that kind of stuff, and so, I mean, we can be aware of that, but nevertheless, he he's just quoting things, and so this is the quote that was uh, quoted in a previous TGC article, albeit a decade ago. 
says, when we quarrel with the way the world is, we find that the world has ways of getting back at us. In other words, however we try, the sexual act cannot be made into an egalitarian pleasure party. A man penetrates, conquers, colonizes, plants. A woman receives, surrenders, accepts. This is, of course, offensive to all egalitarians, and so our culture has rebelled against the concept of authority and submission in marriage. This means that we have sought to suppress the concepts of authority and submission as they relate to the marriage bed. So, uh, Wilson's words are certainly sharper and rougher than Butler's, might I say a little rapier, um, but not entirely incongruent. That was my first thought as soon as you read the last line was a woman's I was like, oh responsibility my gosh. to be submissive within the marriage bed. That is called rape. Right. Like that is and I don't uh, I don't understand how we're framing that biblically. Right. We are we are creating a biblical mandate for rape right now. That's insane. I am I can't. My words are just yeah, so that's and my the jaw language is dropped because it it's just crazy. So that's the language from the previous article. You look at that and say like, yeah, and that was published. That was ten years ago. Yeah, <sighs> but you look at it now and then you compare it to Butler's. Butler's is a lot more like poetic and it's it's um in framed in language of generosity and hospitality, hospitality. rather than obedience and submission. But the the content of um you know penetration and being penetrated is still very much there of like uh of conquest and the submission that the man is bringing about salvation through his seed uh to the woman metaphorically and so it, it the what i'm saying is that it's the the language is different i'm sure the intent is much different in in a lot of different ways but the effect is similar it's just in language that's a, a little bit in for my money it's just in language a little bit more coded uh and can slip through a, a little bit easier um but the 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 root concept there is um is still not addressed in that like it's centering um the man is getting what he wants and then uh somehow um, being made to feel noble about that. Right. And that's probably the part that is um, not the most concerning. There's absolutely a lot of concerning aspects to this understanding of um, husband and wife within their sex life, really. Um, but it's the part that the man is should feel noble and the woman should feel grateful. Um. Yeah, that's the theme. Yeah. And as if the man is not, he's not grateful for what's happening. Like, he's not finding <laughs> there are no benefits to him. Like, this is not a mutually beneficial act that is taking place between a husband and a wife. And, um, yeah, I could definitely go down a lot of rabbit trails right now, probably just because it's so upsetting um, being a woman and hearing these kinds of things right. that are that are reiterated among leaders and theologians and preachers uh, of the church. And 
to take that thinking and attach it to Christ is painful for a woman, hmm. especially a woman who has gone through sexual abuse um, or had a man take advantage of her in any kind of a sexual way to then hear, well, this is actually the way God designed marriage to be. Right. Is you continue to be um, the the party that just receives and you're mm-hmm. supposed to say, thank you. Can I have another? Uh, it, yeah. it That certainly loses the beauty of marriage, the beauty of what it means for a husband and wife to be so committed to one another that if you tear them apart, it feels like a piece of them is left behind. Right. You like you understand marriage in that way. That sacrificial love that a husband and a wife have for one another, the commitment that they have for one another, the bond that they have, and then you turn it into this obligation and hierarchy of I am giving you something and you should say thank you, but that only goes one way. Like the thank you only goes one way. Um, And you just need to receive. Right. So there's just so much about it that is, is not a picture of Christ in his church. Right. Because what did Jesus do for his church? That's the part of the passage that that he left out from the beginning. I didn't get to say that earlier. That the whole crux of that passage is not that Jesus penetrated the church, but that Jesus laid himself down for the church and gave his life to the church. And so the crux of the metaphor is that, yes, it says, wives submit to your husbands, but husbands also love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for them. And so, like... That's the picture. Like, that was missing from the entire thing. And that was the main point of the entire passage of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And to boil it down to sex. That was the other... That was such... Right out the gate. It was an exegetical miscue... Yeah. ...that set him on a trajectory to end up in a very strange place. Because he said... He's talking about the, the... the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this is a mystery and that I'm referring to Christ in the church. And he says, like, like that's talking about sex. No, it's talking about marriage. And sex is a part of marriage, but like <laughs> marriage is obviously so much bigger than that. I guess not so much in white evangelical, I kiss dating goodbye culture is not much more than that. But biblically speaking, it is. And just practically life speaking, it is. Well, like I just think of like the aging couple that's like in their 80s. I mean, maybe they're still having sex. I don't know. But that I, I don't imagine that is the central focus after they've been married for 50 years. There's so much more beauty behind a relationship. Uh, and again, sex is a good thing. This isn't to say, well, who cares about sex? Like, of course we care about it. Hello, we're humans. But to to say this is the central focus and this is the comparison between, this is the comparison scripture is trying to make between Jesus and the church is sex? No, like you're missing how... Uh, robust the 
the relationship within a marriage is supposed to be. When it operates the way that God had intended for it to be, it's supposed to be this beautiful picture of Christ laying down his very life. Like, how much further into commitment can you go? How much further into loving someone can you go? It's not just sex. Yeah. Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, that was weird, man. And I think um, it was harmful. It was more than weird. It was harmful. Because even as I read it, I felt this kind of, there's a kind of sickness in my stomach that I feel that I only feel when I'm in proximity to something that is abusive. And so there was like alarm bells going off in that regard because as someone who has been in proximity to abuse before of various different kinds, whether I experienced it or someone nearby me did, I like I there's a certain there's a vibe. There's a certain vibe. And the the vibe gives you a very specific stomach ache. I go back to the thoughts I had earlier in the podcast of imagine being the woman who has endured sexual abuse. I mean, whether it be one time or multiple times in her life. And then she hears that this is, this is Christ in the way he operates with his church. Hmm. To hear this kind of language, to hear this kind of, um, here is my generous sacrifice to you that you should just be hospitable and receive it because you're the woman. And then to hear this is also the greatest icon and example, right? He uses that all the time. And in this article, he said like sex is an icon of Christ or of the church or something um, or of salvation. I don't know, but sex is an icon <laughs> to the faith. Um, but to, to have a woman who's been broken and abused and, um, finally steps into the church and this is the kind of uh, framework and this is the kind of thinking of this is the Christ that you are coming to for salvation is um, is setting you up to be in another abusive relationship. Um, yeah, I just think about it from from just a very like practical standpoint of the harm that this does to the gospel the harm that this does to people um, having any kind of curiosity for the church again. Uh, We should be a place that provides healing and redemption and a newness of life and not a reiteration of the, the domineering power struggles that unfortunately exist within our culture between men and women um, and have existed like in, throughout history is that not this not the the ministry jesus himself had was for women like uh which gospel is is it luke that you see so many stories within luke's gospel of christ talking to women mm-hmm. i mean it's an all but i think it's a, a special but emphasis it's a, in luke yeah it's a theme in luke of jesus redeeming the dignity and the value of women I don't know why this is making me so emotional all of a sudden. This is crazy. Maybe it's because I'm like eight months pregnant. But um, the dignity that Christ has for women and 
the opportunity that um, theologians and preachers have to to speak into that dignity. And then something like an article like this is put out and um, people who support it. And I'm sure there's going to be sermons that are quoting this thing. And Yeah, it's, like it was an excerpt from but, a book. A whole book is coming. Well, there you go. Yeah. Like. Now this is going to be the language that we 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 begin to use, and it is doing the opposite of bringing value and dignity to women. It is yet again suppressing them and telling them that they can't have a um, a mutually respectable relationship with someone they love, their husband but that their role is only to sit underneath the husband and to receive whatever sacrificial gifts he has to give her. That is not the gospel. And that's not the way that Jesus related to women. And so I don't understand why we want to continue to bring about this kind of a message that is truly only a message of our culture, of our society, and this has been, look at the history of the way women are treated within cultures. We're just going back to that. Right. I mean, when you look at Jesus, like Jesus um, isn't coming to violate your consent. Even when you look at the, the gospel accounts, like Jesus didn't violate consent. He asked people permission before he would heal them. Right. And he would ask them, do you want to be healed? And there's a lot of interpretive questions to that. But um. But if anyone is representing Jesus in your life, then it's not going to be someone who is going to be coercive, who is going to violate your consent, who is going to even make you uh, question whether your consent is being violated. Because sometimes that line can get a little bit fuzzy. This, it's not even going to be you know in the question, but the one who's representing Jesus is going to be the one who is coming to serve and to give their life Um and not just their seed. Well, and let's even... So he's very descriptive in his article. So I... Not that I'm about to, like, describe sex. But I'm just thinking, like... Maybe picture it, maybe don't picture it. But a husband and a wife are having sex. And the man is now understanding his role as... I am giving you a gift that you need to gratefully receive... Do you know how small a woman has to feel while having sex with a husband who who views their act of sex through that lens? Right. Like you're helpless and you are being violated and you're being abused. And yeah, I imagine that gives way to rape even within the context of marriage. Um, and, and whatever kind of maybe even aggressive sexual acts are going to happen, she gets no say in it because she just has to receive. Right. Um, that is not what God intended sex to be. God intended for sex to be, again, a mutually, (laughs) a mutually respected act between a a husband and a wife that draws them closer together, not pushes them further apart. And, um, yeah, just as a woman thinking, like, if this was the frame which in we operated in, like, I would never want to have sex. That sounds awful. Right. This is absolutely terrible. 
um, I would dread the night sex was happening. Yeah. And probably like cry through it or something. Like, mm. you know, you just think of it's, it just strips a woman of all dignity. Right. Yeah. I think any um, truly biblical, godly, healthy vision for like what sex should be, um, what was gapingly missing in this argument was the agency of the woman not being a passive figure, but there are two people involved that are on an equal playing field that um, when their lives come together, which includes sex, that they become this this new thing, this new unit together that is not one subsuming the other, but that it becomes a, a beautiful union that, that brings both into to greater flourishing. And I think that's, you used the word that I was trying to find, um, when a woman, her only role is to be passive. She has no voice. She has no say. She has no opinion. She just has to be like, and this might be a little too descriptive, but she just has to be passively laying there. Right. Like, that's not the picture of Jesus and his church at all. So at the end of the day, we (laughs) didn't mean for that to turn like so dark in the end. But it's important to see how what might feel like a lot of jokes on Twitter might feel like a lot of inappropriate jokes now that Christians are, you know, have the free will to make. Well, um, I mean, a lot of it's kind of gallows humor. It's, I know, I know. It's some pretty dark humor right. based on just the absurdity that yeah. you're faced with. Right. But at the end of the day, we still have hope for the Keller Center. I mean, they're off to a pretty rocky start, but... um we have hope that what their mission and view and contribution to the world and Christianity is going to be good. Um, even if it again, didn't start that way. But that being said, um, we think we need to still stay vigilant to this kind of theology regarding gender and sex and to help cast a better vision of what Christ has for his people and for his church. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Well, the physician comes in and says, tells this lovely couple, hey, your son's not going to make it. But there's a young girl here in the hospital who just delivered a baby girl and she's given her up. She's going to leave her here. Do you want her instead? That was chart topper Ryan Stevenson sharing a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear artists, songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell their stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform.